Okay. Um, well, good evening. Olive Trees, really great to be here. I think this is our second evening, uh, second time we're here. We came here for one of the events that, many events that uh, Ross does organize in the city. Um, and, uh, and it's great to be here, especially in the context, in this context of uh, Bible study. I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, I do have my wife here, Zamo, uh, if you want to wave. Um, just quick intros, and that's looking to my, I've been given a task uh, to look into the book of Romans, uh, just give a broad overview, and that's what I want to do this evening, and let's uh, let me just get myself organized here. Uh, where are we? Just sorting out the technology, and then we're going to be fine. Yeah, the book of Romans, um, quite a significant book. Um, uh, 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 you know, for the reasons that we're going to state uh, as we walk through and as, as we journey through this. We have 30 minutes to condense everything. Uh, that's, only Ross gives you those kind of tasks, right? You're like, <laughs> we call them complex tasks. That's what we call it. That's the word that we use. Okay, so we know that the author of this word is Paul, the apostle, estimated to have been written around AD 55, between 55 and 58. It's written to the church in Rome, um, and he, he introduces, he opens up the letter by saying in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Okay, so we know that the, in terms of the audience and the composition of this church, it is a mixed church of Jews and Gentiles, majority Gentiles and minority Jews for some other reasons that had taken place within the city of Rome. Um, and, um, and of course, this is a church in the epicenter, at the epicenter of the world of the time. Uh, this is the very heart of the Roman Empire. So it, it is significant for those obvious reasons. And also for the fact that Paul had, in fact, been called to minister to Gentiles and to Caesar specifically. So I do think that he saw this church as a very significant church in his ministry. Um, um, he, he speaks about the fact that this church had gained prominence all over the world. People were talking about Romans or the church in Rome. Um, he says, everyone has heard about your obedience in Romans 16 verse 19. So we know that this was, this was a passionate church that obeyed the Lord, that was given to the things of God. Um, uh, he celebrates the whole issue of obedience. And interestingly, he had opened the book of, of, of Romans in Romans chapter 1 verse 5 by saying, or by talking about the God who calls Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So he celebrates obedience inside of this church. Very significant for us inside of, inside of our time. And in terms of the origins of this church, we know that there were Romans um, uh, during that great revival that happened in Acts chapter 2, uh, when Peter stood up and uh, released his very first evangelistic message um, after God had broken out by his spirit in Acts chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, it does say that there were Romans in that mix. Uh, and so they, they would have come for the, the, the feast and, and, and probably some of those people left or went back to the city of Rome having been converted. Um, uh, and, and it talks about the fact that they met in houses or, or if you read about the, the, the Roman um, settings. It would have been probably up apartments. Some of these Roman believers were probably not very rich. 
there were immigrants or some probably even slaves. And so um, they were meeting in houses, in apartments. They didn't have this advantage of, that we have in these days of having bigger spaces and having, of having favor with our governments. Um, a very strong church. We, we note the, the strong functionality of women inside of this church. Very, very interestingly, in Romans chapter 16, as Paul celebrates and greets some of these believers, he honors the women inside of the church. And we know that when, church, when, 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 when Paul was sent uh, to Rome in Acts 28, this church came out, some of these believers, some of these brothers came out in Acts 28 verse 15 to meet with Paul. So they were very concerned about the matters of faith and the state of the church. Uh, it was a very involved church. What was the surrounding culture of, that the ch this church existed in? It was partly legalism, and, and Paul does go into detail to address the issue of legalism. Uh, he talks about the fact that there were false teachers in their midst in Romans 16, verses 17 to 18. Uh, so we know there was an issue of legalism. In chapter 1, we know there was idolatry of creation. They idolized elements of creation and, and science. We also know that there was sexual perversion in this church. Um, there, were, there was mention, uh, Paul mentions issues of homosexuality. Uh, there was crime, um, in, in, not in this church, sorry, in the, in the city of Rome. Uh, sexual perversion, crime, disintegration of family. So we can see the culture in which this church is being built. Uh, children are disobeying parents in chapter 1, verse 30. There is just general social chaos and also fear of political authorities. Of course, if you had Nero as, as your political authority, you had reasons to be fearful. And so that's the context, that's the culture. Paul is clearly very fond of this church as an apostle, as a leader. Um, he uses very emotional uh, language and statements to, to, to capture his attachment inside of his own heart to the church. In Romans 1, verse 11, he says, I long to see you. I long to see you. In verse 12, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And in chapter 16, verse 19, he says, I am full of joy over you because I'm hearing about your obedience and in chapter 15, 24, he says, I want to see you to enjoy your company. When a leader wants to see believers to enjoy their company, you know, those people, people are doing great. Um, you know, when a pastor wants to see people just to enjoy their company, then you know they are doing quite great. They were very close friends in the midst of this church. Uh, friends of Paul, and some of, of which were Priscilla and Aquila. Romans 16, verse 3, he greets them. Uh, in fact, he also make, makes mention of, of, of his relatives as well. Foundational themes. I want, I'm going to just mention three things that are, I think are foundational about this letter of, to, to the Romans. The first being the fact that there is the universality of the truth of the gospel of Christ to mankind that is being outlined for us. The universality of the truth of the gospel of Christ to mankind. That actually God is reaching out both to Jews and Gentiles. And um, linked to that, the second theme, foundational theme, is the fact that the equality of Jews and Gentiles, and therefore the equality of races, is also being hammered, being established through this letter. Uh, you could therefore put this letter next to Ephesus, when Paul outlines a vision of one new man in Ephesians chapter 2 and, and also, you know, Galatians and Colos, Colo, you know, Colossians. But he, he does talk about the equality of Jews and Gentiles. And then 
the third foundation that we can un underscore here is that at the very heart of this book is the whole spirit of reformation. He is reforming the way people understood God and the way people understood how to relate to God. And in the context, he was shifting them from law to Christ. And so there is a very, very strong spirit of reformation. You could therefore connect this book to the book of Hebrews, if you liked, uh, in that sense. It, it, it deals with some of the very reformational issues. Let's scan through some of the things that Paul covers in, in the various chapters. And if we, I'm going to just... Uh, group chapters here. So let's begin with the block of chapters 1 to 5. Um, just for the sake of time, I'm just grouping some of these chapters. Chapters 1 to 5, we see that there is, the, you know, the plan of God to reach out to both Jews and Gentiles is outlined. In chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. And, and it's a very significant thing back in, the, in those days, significant for us too inside of this time because of the racial, cultural divisions that existed. Um, we also see that truth must be accepted by men. So truth must not only be declared, but it must be ac accepted. That man must obey truth. And, 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 um, and that the rejection of truth is a dangerous thing, but it, because it leads to idolatry, it leads to godliness, it leads to wickedness, it leads, it leads to sexual perversion. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. In chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, we are given a warning about the dangers of legalism and hypocrisy, that we are not to judge that which we ourselves are not practicing. And, and, um, and uh, we are told in, about the fact that Jews and Gentiles are all are both under sin, and all have sinned and fall, fallen short of the glory of God, chapter 3, verse 23. And Paul then starts to introduce some very, very powerful words for us here. Words like justification. We are justified freely in chapter 3, verse 24. And that word justified means to render innocent, to make righteous, to render someone who was guilty to, uh, innocent and to declare them righteous. That's what that word means. That's what has happened to us by salvation. He also says we've been redeemed. Redeemed, chapter 3, verse 24. And the Holy, that word redemption means the recalling of captives from captivity through the payment of a ransom for them. So God has paid something. There's a transaction that almost happened with darkness between God and darkness that he paid for our release. That's what that word redemption means. The other word that Paul introduces us to is the word atonement, chapter 3, verse 25, that Christ is our atonement. And, and, um, and, uh, and what that word atonement means is that God has offered the ultimate sacrifice of Christ in order to show his mercy to us. So God could not have shown his mercy to us without firstly offering the sacrifice for that mercy to be made possible to us. What that means is that salvation is freely given, but it has, in fact, costed God everything. It is freely given. That's the concept of salvation. It is freely given, but someone actually died for salvation to be offered to you and I. And that's the word atonement. And then Paul says all of this actually means that God is demonstrating his justice to us. Big word, justice, in chapter 3, verse 25. And the word justice here 
meaning equity of character. It, it describes the nature of God. It means right of action or right actions. It means the, it speaks of the holy standards of God, the uprightness of God. That's the word justice. And so what is it about justice here that, you know, that is captured in the story of salvation? It is that God has not, um, he, has, he, has, he has rendered justice to us by not leaving men or by not leaving us in a state of condemnation, but also by not accepting us in the sinful state. So he's not leaving us in a state of condemnation, but he's not accepting us in a state of sin, because that would violate the order of God. But here's what God has done. He has made a provision of sacrifice that makes it possible for us to be acceptable to him and to live this holy life. So he has, left, he has, he has, he has refused to left us condemned, but he has refused to accept us in the state of sin. He has rather offered the sacrifice that makes it possible for us to be acceptable before him, and not only to be acceptable, but to actually go on to live this holy life. And then because of that, we are sanctified. Chapter 15, verse 16, means to be made, to be made holy. And as we journey through these chapters, chapter 1 to 5, we then are told about Abraham. In chapter 4, he discovered the matter of faith. And we know we have Hebrews 11 that gives an account of people that did live by faith. But Abraham discovered something about faith, that if you believe the promise of God, God then credits it to you as righteousness. That word credits is an accounting word. It means to calculate and to estimate, to credit to someone's life. Um, um, so, so it's like God took his righteousness when we offered him our belief based on what he said to us. He then credits righteousness to us and he accepts us as those who are made righteous. So in chapter 1 and chapter 5, then Paul talks about the fact that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the wicked who suppress the truth. Dangerous thing for us to suppress the truth. Chapter 1 verse 18, but... We who have accepted Jesus Christ by faith are saved from this wrath. In chapter 5, verse 9. So on the one hand, the wrath of God is revealed. On the other hand, we are saved from this wrath through Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, we are then introduced to the doctrine of Adam and, and the doctrine of sin. And it takes us back to what God created in the beginning and the whole idea that all men have sinned. And the principle is this, that because of Adam's actions, all of mankind is under sin and therefore subject to death. So we have sinned by association to our ancestor Adam, the first Adam, that is. But if we accept Jesus as our new ancestor, we are then moved away from sin to righteousness. And so... The whole doctrine of sin does not begin with what we, you and I may regard as the first bad things that we do in life. It begins with our association with Adam through the act of creation. And that's a very, very important thing because it goes against the spirit of self-righteousness in us. So we have sinned by association and, and not simply by the evil deeds inside of our own lives. As we scan through chapters 6 to 8... We see that in chapter 6, um, we have received grace so that we may live a new life. We have not received grace, Paul warns. 
We have not received grace as a license to immorality, but we have received grace so that we may live this new life with Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says. And in chapter 6, verses 3 to 4, he says, we are baptized. We have been baptized into. He uses those phrases, uh, those phrases, baptized into and buried with Christ. Baptized into Christ, buried with Christ. And those phrases, baptized into, buried with, indicate the fact that grace is not received in a state of passivity. But grace requires our participation in, the life, in this life of Christ. Consequently, we are now slaves unto righteousness. And that's a strong word that Paul uses. He introduces the idea that we are slaves unto righteousness. And that was slave meaning to subject your will under the will of another. So when we get saved, we actually give God the right. Uh, uh, it's a voluntary choice on our side. God does not force us, of course. We give him the right to live through us. Paul says, we've been baptized with Christ Jesus, and he lives in us. In chapter 7, the function of law, we see that the function of law is to reveal the standard of God, but also to expose our inability to meet that standard. And as Paul takes us to chapter 8, he therefore reveals the fact that we need Christ to win this, this battle over sin. And uh, so he says we need to live by Christ so that we can have no condemnation. We need to live by the Spirit so that we can have no condemnation. He uses the phrase, led by the Spirit. And then there's another interesting phrase he uses in chapter 8. He talks about we, need to, we have submitted to the law of the Spirit of life. And for the first time, he introduces us to another concept here that there is not just the law of Moses, there is the law of the spirit of life, which generally can be described as the way of the spirit. There are ways of the spirit that we have to um, uh, walk in uh, in order to live this life of salvation victoriously. Chapters 9 to 11, chapters 9 to 11, the promise, we are told about the promise of God that's given to us by God's sovereign choice and by his mercy, not by works. Chapter 9, verses 10 to 24. And that in chapter 10, verse 1, he begins to shift the conversation to the subject of Israel. He says, we must pray for Israel that they may be saved. And important for us to note here when he talks about Israel, that he's not referring to the state of Israel, but rather the people, the Jews, who have received and carried um, the, the, the promises of God throughout the generation. We have paid the price. And how do we know that we are not to confuse this with the state? Is that when he talks about the Gentiles, he's not talking about the Republic of South Africa. He's talking about the whites, the Zulus, the Tosas in South Africa. And the state cannot be saved, but the people must be saved. A people within the state must be saved. So when we take that doctrine to, to interpret it within the context of the state of Israel, it takes us on a whole bunch of other things that can be problematic for us. But we know that we have to carry the Israelites, the Jews inside of our hearts, the people group, the ethnos, uh, the ethnicity of uh, the Jewish ethnicity, because they were the pioneers uh, of the faith. And they paid the price. And the lineage of Christ, the natural lineage of Christ is found, can be traced through them. 
And Paul says, how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So, you know, he's, the, 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 the focus of Paul is people, not the state of Israel that he's talking about here. So he says, did God reject Israel? He asked this question in chapter 11, verse 1. Did God reject Israel? And the answer uh, that Paul gives is no, God did not reject Israel. And he uses his own salvation as an Israelite. Uh, as, an, as the evidence of the fulfillment of the pr- promise of God. And then he says there's a remnant of Israel chosen by grace and not by works. Um, in verses 5 to 6, chapter, chapter 11, another important issue, meaning that there is no other special provision of salvation for Israel but Christ. And this argument has been established in the earlier chapters in the book of Romans. So he says there's a remnant of Israel chosen by grace and not by works. In 26, he says, all Israel will be saved. Important statement. It reveals the focus of the statement is the revelation of the heart of God towards Israel. It's not the fact that all, literally all Israel will be saved. It's like God saying, I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. But not all flesh receives the spirit of God. And so the, the emphasis of that statement is the revelation of the heart of God for all to be saved, all Jews to be saved, just as God desires that all men would receive his spirit. That's important. And if they shall be saved, then through Jesus Christ, as stated earlier. And as far as this is concerned, this is God's gift to Israel that cannot be changed. It will not be changed. In chapters 12 to 15, Paul begins chapter 12 by saying, in view of God's mercy... There are certain things that then we need to respond by doing. In view of God's mercy, what are these things that we need to do as we track from chapters 12 to 15? Is that we need to be transformed and we need to be separated from the world. The famous scripture, be transformed by the renew of your mind that you will not follow the pattern of the, of the world in which you exist. And for the Romans, it is all of those things I mentioned earlier, the the. the Uh, disintegration of family and all of those things that were happening in that city. Be transformed and be separated from the world in view of this mercy. The second thing that he identifies, live a life of service. Chapters 12, verses 6 to 8. If your gift is to lead, lead diligently. If it is to give, give diligently. If it is to provide hospitality, do so diligently. So in view of God's mercy, number one, be transformed and be separated from the world. Number two, live a life of service. Number three, live in brotherly kindness as the saints, willing to be associated across classes within the house of God. So there must be no class consciousness in the, the house of God. And, and, um, and there are things that he says later about that holy of brotherly kindness. And then the next thing that he says is that you must love your enemies because God has shown, has showed mercy to you. Chapters 12, verses 17 to 21, love your enemies. And then the next thing he says, submit to political authorities. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, do not be hostile to political authorities, because they've been called by God. So that's the relationship of the church with the government. Um, uh, of course, the structure of the state different from how things were. In those days, you had an emperor. Uh, today, you, have a, you will live in, 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 in a republic um, like South Africa with parliament, uh, the, gov- uh, uh, the executive, and, and the judiciary. And, and so Paul says we have to relate to the state. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a good, provided the state 
uh, does its, its job. They provided, it bears, it administers justice. So he talks about the, the political authorities being agents of justice. And then he says, because of the mercy of God, the next thing we have to do is love our countrymen. So he takes us beyond church. So he's talking about not just loving church members that we worship with on Sunday morning, but loving our countrymen. Uh, our behavior in the malls, on the road, loving our countrymen, having an attitude that is held towards um, our fellow citizens in chapter 13, uh, in chapter 13 verses 8 to, to 10. And when Paul talks about brotherly kindness, he further qualifies it by saying that love, this is how the church or the saints must relate. Love must be, must be the guiding principle of relations between believers. Love. He says, don't act out of self-interest in the name of knowledge, but out of love for your brother. He says, don't impose your religious obligations to another. He says, don't obsess about issues of personal opinion in the journey of the faith. And he says, ignore insignificant matters. Learn to ignore insignificant matters. Learn to coexist with fellow believers without raising issues and arguments and stuff like that. And of course, in chapter 16, then Paul does his final greeting. This book is significant for us as we seal this thing up. It's significant for us in, three, in the following ways. It is significant to us because it outlines the administration of salvation to mankind. And in fact, this is a book that we, 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 we normally use in Romans 7.10 when we administer salvation. Uh, but beyond just that, there is a broad outline of how God is reaching out to mankind, both Jews and Gentiles. So it is significant in the administration of salvation. Number two, it lays the foundation or it laid the foundation for the Protestant movement in the 1500s. This book is important because this is the same book that Martin Luther, the German reformer, used to confront Catholic legalism. So just like the letter became, uh, this book of Romans, became the light God used against legalism or Jewish legalism of the early church, it equally became the light against Catholic legalism in the 1500s. Absolutely important. And this book is also important, number three, because it is this two-edged sword. In the one hand, it liberates us from sin by showing the plan of salvation. On the other hand, it liberates us from legalism by showing our freedom in Christ Jesus. So it aligns administration of salvation. This book laid the foundation for the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s. And this book is, will always remain this two-edged sword of God that liberates us, number one, from sin, and number two, from legalism. This is the book of Romans. Thank you.